Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 7 and Genesis chapter 44. We'll land somewhere between the two. As you've already prayed uh, for Ukraine this morning, and just try to frame this somehow with what we see happening around us in the world um, as you pray this week and you're watching the news, um, certainly as we've already prayed for the church um, in the Ukraine, and we're praying for the protection of the nations around Ukraine, not just our NATO allies, but we just see what is a David versus Goliath kind of moment um, happening, at least when it comes to military might. Um, you know, one of the things that we always struggle with is trying to understand how a person could lead a nation to fulfill um, what many seem as an evil intention. Um, you know, I hate to use the name, but how could Adolf Hitler have done what he did and lead a modern nation to kill as many people as, as they did but we also understand that in these times that we have a God who is in control and that he uses everything to fulfill his purpose and even will use things that are evil to fulfill his purposes which are good and for his glory. So we see times in our day when people around us don't believe in a thing like evil. Or we struggle with how could God allow this to happen? Um, but we know from Scripture that our God holds the reins of, I'll illustrate it as the horse named Justice. He rides that horse. He is in control and that one day he will crack the whip and dig the spur and that justice will come thundering down the mountain. Evil will have its day. It's had its day. Go back to the very beginning. You see it. It will have its day. It's having its day now. But that God will keep evil men on a short leash. You can look in Scripture and find times where nations like Assyria or Babylon or the Midianites, uh, others that would oppress the Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament. Even in the days when Jesus was there and the conquest that Rome had been on for some time, we understand that at some point, sometime, God will bring justice to the Antichrist, to the man of lawlessness, and those who will be like the Antichrist. John says there's many of them. 
we understand that one day um, that the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy will have his day in court. And that our God, who holds the reins of justice, will hand that justice out. It's his to, to issue. It's not ours. Our job as the church is to hold on to his sovereignty. Our job as the church is to hold on to him. And that when we see things happening around us, that no matter what it looks like, as one nation is walking literally through the valley of the shadow of death, that tomorrow will always prove that our God was in control and he never lost control. And so this week I'll call on you and however long this lasts, I'll call on you to trust him and to pray for the people of Ukraine, to pray for the church of the Ukraine. I shouldn't even say the church of Ukraine because it's not the church of the United States or the church of the Ukraine, it's the church. We have one Lord one Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine that they would rise up and be blessed in this time, that God would oversee them. We also want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Russia. We have brothers and sisters who do not like what their leader is doing. We need to know that. We need to pray that they will rise up and speak against it and not be silent like the church was with Hitler in Germany. Too many of them remained silent for fear. It's easy for me to say that standing here on a stage in a nation where I'm not gonna find any issues by and large with anyone saying that. We're by and large supporting the people. Most people will see what Putin is doing as evil. So it's easy for me to stand and say that and speak against it. But it's gonna be hard for them for the fear of death. But we pray that they will be strong in their stance against this, and we can pray that God will save hundreds, if not thousands, of the people who are now calling out to him. Psalm 33, verse 10 says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. And we pray that God would do just that. And then we look for the day where our, our king will return. Because on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that is the name above every other name. Let's pray together. Fathers, we go into your word now. We thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you that this truth brings change and transformation in our life. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine who are suffering today. I have a feeling that they did not stop worshiping you on this day under threat of more attack. I have a feeling that they called out to you and that you heard them and reassured them of your presence. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to support however you call us to do so. To know, for them to know that the church loves them, is praying for them. And Father, that you would raise up those who would bring support to them in this most difficult time.
pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 7. Talk about how today the truth leads us to life transformation. The truth of knowing Jesus Christ leads us to transformation. Not that we're in this to transform ourselves, but rather the truth of who Christ is, what he has done for us at the cross and taking our place, and in the power of the resurrection now being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that he is at work to transform our heart. Acts chapter 7, if you would stand with me. I'm going to read verses 9 through um, 9 through 16. And what we find here is a summation of what we're going through in Genesis. So it's a little bit quicker <laughs> to read this passage than reading like four or five chapters this morning. Here we go. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there for the, uh, the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. This is the word of God. May it be blessed this morning. You may be seated. Thank you. So that's a big, very condensed picture of what we've been reading with Joseph. Um, in verse 9 there, Luke, uh, excuse me, this is actually Stephen's sermon captured by Luke in the book of Acts. And, and Stephen is calling them the patriarchs. These are Joseph's brothers. They sell him into slavery. We've, we've been through that. God rescued him out of prison um, after he was put there, having fled from Mrs. Potiphar and her sinful desires. God gave him favor. God gave him wisdom on how to interpret dreams. And eventually, that comes to a point where he has interpreted a dream for Pharaoh. And in that dream, it is foretold uh, that there will be seven years of blessing and prosperity for Egypt, and then will come seven years of extreme famine, not just for Egypt, but for all of the land, including uh, Jacob and the rest of the family. So that gets us back to, uh, go back to Genesis chapter 44, that gets us back to this moment that we lead into uh, chapter 44. In chapter 42, the brothers arrive. Um, Joseph um, has provided them what they need, and yet in this moment, Joseph has slipped in some silver uh, into Simeon's bag, and that is going to be used against the brothers, and Simeon will be held back um, to, uh, to be with Joseph. Joseph is then going to call them to bring the youngest brother named Benjamin uh, to him. That gets us to chapter uh, 44, more or less. Now, in all of this, Joseph is building this final moment, this final test. We got to remember where Joseph has come from. He was beaten up by his brothers. Uh, he was left for dead in the bottom of the well for his, by his brothers. One of them returns and, and rescues him. And then it's one of the brothers named Judah that will sell Joseph 
into slavery with the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites take, uh, then take Joseph down to Egypt. This final test is going to involve the youngest brother named Benjamin. With Jacob thinking that uh, Joseph is dead, Benjamin is born. Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. Same mother, same father. And, and now Benjamin has taken the place of Joseph as the favorite son. This gets us to chapter 44 where this, this final test is issued. You see, what, what Joseph is facing is the transformation in his life that needs to happen is that he needs to forgive his brothers. He needs to forgive what, for what has happened to him and what they did to him. The next thing that needs to happen is that his brothers need to confess their sin and also be forgiven. And then you have Jacob, their father. Jacob, Jacob's great sin among many, but one in particular, is that he has played favorites amongst his sons. First with Joseph, now with Benjamin. And he needs to forgive his sons for what they did to Joseph. So through chapters 43 through 45, it is God who is at work in all of them to bring about this moment of reconciliation and forgiveness, and, and, and uh, there's some intercession that's happening, and then there's a great sacrifice that's going to take place, and even a, we'll see a glimpse of substitution, uh, and we'll get there in time. But verses 1 through 9 of chapter 44, what's happening here is this, this is Joseph's conspiracy, we'll call it. This is his test. The order is given by Joseph to his servant to provide the, the, the brothers with plenty of food, plenty of food to get back, and some, even some wagons, so they can go back and retrieve Jacob and bring him back to Joseph. Now, they still don't know it's Joseph yet. That happens in the next chapter. They still don't know it's him. But the plan is to stick a special cup of Joseph's, a silver cup, into the youngest son, that's Benjamin, to slip it into his bag, just like they did with the silver back with Simeon, here they're going to do this time to Benjamin. Now the brothers will depart, the brothers leave, but the steward is told to go after them and frame Benjamin with the silver cup. That's exactly what happens. In verse 10, this is where the confrontation begins. He says, what, uh, what you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave. The rest of you will be blameless. Here's what's happening. The steward shows up on the scene and he says, why have you repaid the good of Pharaoh with this evil? Why have you repaid evil for good? What's the deal? Why are you doing this? Why would you treat him this way? And they're like, well, they're, they're stunned. They're astonished. They, they don't know what this guy is talking about. They, but, but their response we see in verse 11, they quickly lower their bags and their sacks to the ground and they open. The steward begins searching, oldest to the youngest, and there the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, verse 12. Then the older brothers, they tear their clothes, they tear their clothes because what they have already stated is the one that you find it on, he shall be put to death. The others, the rest of us, we will stay and be the servants of Pharaoh. They did not know that that silver cup was in Jacob's favorite son, Benjamin's bag. But when it's found in Benjamin's bag, they immediately realize what this means. Grief overtakes them. They tear their clothes and they cry out. And then the confession begins in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. And Joseph says, what is this that you have done? Didn't you know that I am a man? that a man like me could uncover the truth with divination. What can we say, my Lord, Judah replied. How can we plead? 
How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. That confession, it's really verse 16, where Judah says, God has exposed your servant's iniquity. This is a moment that's bigger than just the silver cup because we know Benjamin didn't steal the cup. And I think Judah knows that. I think all of the brothers know that. Benjamin knows that. Benjamin knows he didn't steal the cup. It was placed there. If Joseph doesn't know it, I think it's a bigger picture that in this moment, Judah is talking about all that the brothers have been involved in. The beating that they gave to Joseph out of jealousy, leaving him in the well, lying to Jacob about his death, selling him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. All of that is now weighing on Judah and the brothers because it's come back one more time. Dad's favorite son is in trouble. Dad's favorite son is facing death, if Joseph were to go by their words, but definitely enslavement for the rest of his life, and they would have to return home without dad's favorite, just like it happened when they sold Joseph into slavery. And then Joseph said, I will not do this. I'm not gonna do what you said. Here's what's gonna happen. And here's, here's what's gonna happen. I'll keep, I'll keep the youngest, the rest of you go home. But this is the moment that Judah has. This is the moment where we find the life change, the transformation that has taken place for Judah. We need to understand who Judah is, just for a moment. He's not been a guy of high moral standards, okay? He, he's not like Joseph. In fact, he might be the opposite of Joseph. He's the one, Judah is the one, who took it upon himself to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, okay? You think Joseph doesn't remember that? He remembers. Judah is the one who came up with the idea and pulled it off. He also, in chapter 38, I think it is, he also refused to let his daughter-in-law, Tamar, marry one of his younger sons when her husband died. Then he slept with her thinking that she was a Canaanite prostitute. Messed up story, y'all. Messed up family. You think your family's got troubles, right? It's okay. We're all messed up on some level. But this is one of these moments where life change, we can find it in the story. We see it. It's just jumping off the page. He even goes so far in his confession to say in verse 20 that the boy's brother, he's talking about Benjamin's brother, is dead. He's talking about Joseph. He's talking to Joseph about Joseph being dead. This, this boy, Benjamin, he's the only one left uh, from his mother. This, this is a, a huge moment. He's building up, and, and J, uh, Judah's going to relive all of the retelling of, of what they've been through uh, and how they've been to Joseph once, um, and now he sent him away, and now they're back, and it's, he's retelling the whole story. And now Judah's saying, now you want to keep him here and for us to go back? Here, here is the life change moment. Look at verse 33 of chapter 44. He is more concerned about his father than he is about himself. That's the change in Judah's life. Watch what he says. Verse 32. 
Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. That is the life-changing moment for Judah. He is no longer thinking about himself. In fact, Judah will be the first person or is the first person in Scripture thus far to offer himself as a substitute for someone else, to take someone else's punishment and let the other person go free. He will suffer, let Benjamin go back free to his father. That moment, this is the moment Joseph has been waiting for, to see, have my brothers changed at all? Now they stand as one. They could have left Benjamin behind, just like they sold Joseph. They could have left him behind, but they didn't. Judah has put his father, he's put Benjamin, his brother, and the rest of his family ahead of himself and said, no, I will take their place. You keep me, let them go. And of course, in chapter 45, verse 1, it's more than Joseph can handle. In verse 1, it says, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of his attendants, So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Listen, that dream that Joseph bragged about and boasted about that got him in trouble with the brothers, the straw that broke the camel's back, it's coming, it's coming to reality. It's coming true. You don't think that these guys who are standing here before the second in command of Egypt are terrified that they just heard those words come out of this man's mouth. This man could sentence them to death for all the pain and heartache and sin and unrighteousness that they did against him back when he was a boy. That he could bring down the justice and the wrath of Pharaoh on them and totally be justified in the eyes of Pharaoh and the rest of the people. They are terrified of what this means. But he says in verse four, please come near me. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. The reconciliation is beginning and revival is going to happen for Jacob, the old man's heart. This is that big reveal moment that reconciliation is happening, that they're terrified, they're afraid. And yet Joseph is saying, come here, guys, come here. Don't be afraid. God's had his hand in this the whole time. We're going to look at chapter 50 next week, but we understand here he's already telling them God had a bigger plan in mind. It's it's been his plan all along. He reassures them. He sent me here to preserve life. Friend, if that does not leap Jesus off of the page at you, I don't know what will. This is exactly why Jesus came. And yet this is just a glimpse. Jesus is the fulfillment of that truth right there. He was sent to preserve life. Not that we would live forever in this current state, but life to come, eternal life. He came to preserve eternal life for us, to provide eternal life for us, that all of our sins, too, could be forgiven, just like Joseph is forgiving his brothers. Reassurance that it's going to be okay. 
Friends, we've got to trust in God's sovereign plan for our life. When we trust in his presence and we trust in that plan, in his sovereignty, that God is over our life, then that brings us to a place where Joseph is, where we are able to extend forgiveness and see relationships restored and find reconciliation. We trust his presence. We enjoy his grace. And then we extend that grace to those who have hurt us. In verse 9, Joseph goes on to say, guys, it's time to come here. It's time to relocate. So we need to get everything together. Go home. Tell Jacob. Get, get our father. You guys come back. We're going to take care of you. And when Pharaoh finds out what's happening, he sends even more and welcomes them back. Verse 14 we really begin to see that, re- that reconciliation take control over all of them. Joseph throws his arms around his brother Benjamin and they weep together. Verse 15, Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept and afterward his brothers talked with him. What stories were told of how, yeah, man, I came here, I got bought up by Potiphar and his wife tried this thing on, you know, and I ran away and then I got put into prison and yet both times God brought me, helped me rise to the top. God's hand's been on me. He's blessed everything I'm doing. Now I'm with Pharaoh. Man, what an awesome, awesome insight and conversation that must have been for those brothers to hear what, how God had blessed their brother Joseph. Well, in verse 16, they get back home and they, they go for Jacob and they, they, they arrive at home after some time and, and, and we find that Jacob is stunned Verse 25, they went up from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they said, Joseph is still alive and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned. Some translations will say Jacob's heart was numb. Totally caught him off guard. He was expecting his sons to come back with the brother Simeon and for Benjamin to be there and for them to have plenty of food for the next couple of years, everything they needed, and this is, what they, this is what he hears. Joseph is still alive, and he does not believe them when they tell him. Verse 27, but when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. He goes from being numb to being revived. Ezekiel says something similar that God would do for us. He would take that heart of stone Remove it and put in a heart of flesh. He changes our heart. He begins that work of transformation in us. And what brought him around to this revival of his heart was the gifts, the grace that Joseph sent to him from Egypt. Jacob was revived. Jacob is revived by the kindness of his son that he once thought was dead, but is now alive. Friends, When I read through this, I just see a couple of things that really jump out at me. One, I've already kind of mentioned the the presence of Christ, the transformation that happens, but I want to just remind you that the grace of God changes everything. It changes everything. First thing it changes is that, that you can be reconciled to God through Christ. You can be reconciled to God through Christ. Now, you might ask yourself, why, does that, why do we need to be reconciled? What does that even mean? Well, we've got an account there with the Lord, I suppose, and that account is full of sin, and our goodness and our rightness will never outweigh our sin. 
And uh, that's not how the scale works. Uh, And so we need this right relationship with the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse one. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. If you think about that verse two, your iniquities are separating you from your God. What was it that separated this family and broke them up? Is it the sin and the iniquity of the brothers? Jacob's favoritism with Joseph in the first place drove a wedge between them and then Joseph's pride. Our sin and our iniquity separate us. Then he goes on in verse three, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity and your lips have, been, have spoken lies and your tongues mutter injustice. Friends, that is the reason why we need to be reconciled with God. We see these sins of jealousy and deceit, the intended murder of Joseph at one point, the brothers and their jealousy all caused the separation, but God was at work in their lives through these circumstances to bring about this moment where they will be transformed and their hearts are now reconciled to one another. And to us, for us, that brings great hope today. It brings great hope for us that we too can be reconciled to God through Christ. And the reconciliation that happens in this family is just one of the big moments of this story for Jacob and Joseph. And it happens when Joseph forgives the wrongs committed against him. And it it happens when Judah confesses not just his sin, but all of the brothers' sins against Joseph. And then when he's willing to take the place of Benjamin, when he's willing to substitute himself in place of Benjamin, that he would take the punishment instead of Benjamin, and that Benjamin would be allowed to go free. Here's how that relates to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is us. We are the ungodly there in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is where he became our substitute, where he stepped up and said, no, they will go free. I will take their punishment. And that happens at the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. First Peter 3.18. Church, never underestimate the powerful grace of God to change a life. There is no substitution for the great substitute who took our place at the cross. When that happens, when we trust Jesus for eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins, that he is our Lord and Savior, God begins a work in us That work is to make us a new creation and to bring transformation, just like we've seen in this story of Joseph, Jacob, and Judah, and the rest of the brothers. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Being a new creation, Paul says, is from God. That is the change that changes everything, that God makes you a new creature. This story that we've been through shows us that God will take his time working out the kinks. You know, the blacksmith, when he picks up his hammer and that raw piece of metal, it doesn't suddenly with one strike of the hammer become a knife or a sword or a nail or a horseshoe or any other thing that he might try to fashion. It takes time. It takes pressure. It takes heat. It takes know-how. Our God has all of those things, and he is at work in our life, and our life begins to change the moment we come to Christ. 
Why is that possible? Because he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're not the righteousness of God before Christ. Only once we're in Christ do we receive that grace gift. Friends, never underestimate the transforming grace of God in your life. When he makes you that new creation, that work of transformation begins in you. There is an instant when it happens, we are transformed. But then there's also the process of working transformation over time. We see that in our text. It took time for Joseph. It took time for Judah. It took time for the rest of the brothers and for Jacob. But it's the spirit of God that does the work. Listen to what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's a process that we're in. But it's a process that he will see through to the end if we'll trust him and walk with him. How do we know he is at work in us? How do, how do we know? One way we can see in this story this morning is that God's work of transformation brings you to a place of reconciling with those who have hurt you. When you're at a place where you can reconcile and forgive with those who have hurt you, you know God is at work in you. Colossians 3.13 says that we are to bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That takes time. It takes time when you're hurt, when you're angered. You even might feel like damaged goods. It takes time. But if you will let the Lord work on your heart and bring that transformation, you will get to this place where the reconciliation is working in your life. I think the work of, this work of transformation right here, the, the work of forgiveness and reconciliation is probably one of the hardest things to do other than baptism, where you're in front of everybody. A lot of people get nervous about that. But people get really nervous when you start talking about releasing the vengeance that we want on those who have hurt us. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Jesus said 70 times seven or 77, just depends on which translation you read. It's not about the number, but rather it's about that every time you remember that hurt, you forgive again. You extend grace, extend mercy. The power of forgiveness is great. The power of reconciliation is great only because our God has walked that road and he is the one behind that forgiveness, the God of forgiveness is greater. The God of our forgiveness is greater than any of our hurts. And you think about how many times our God has been offended by his creation. I guarantee you, he's been, been offended way more than we ever will in our short span. And yet, our Christ died for the ungodly. He took your place. How do we get there? I believe that God will bring you to a place of deep trust in his sovereignty, deep trust in his divine presence in your life. 
And if you get to that place, when you get to that place, he will rescue you from becoming bogged down in bitterness and anger and resentment. To trust that he is working everything that you're walking through in this life for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose.